expensive. <laughs> and that one you won like forever. Wood, I, was like, well, I was like, what is that wood? Okay, uh, let's start. Let's. We're gonna um, finish the garden. Um, we're gonna finish um, uh, one way or another. We're going to make a gesture towards finishing book three today, which was it was a good thing that we looked sort of at the end. Um, but we're going to return to the end, that is, to Amrit and Scudamore. But it's really at the Garden of Adonis, you will recall, um, that uh, we find out um, Amrit's history, um, because Venus raises her in the Garden of Adonis, and then find out that Scudamore um, is in love with her, that she goes to court and everyone falls in love with Amrit, including Scudamore, and Scudamore is the one to whom she returns her love, uh, and then that's what gets picked up at the end of book three when um, she gets uh, taken away by Buserain, um on her marriage day. And, um, and she and Scudamore, that is to say, this is what we talked about yesterday, yesterday, Monday, uh, she and Scudamore don't consummate their marriage. Um, so, so that uh, the whole issue of chastity um, comes out as the final task is to deal with non-consummation, um, that is, with a version of chastity that has to do with non-consummation. And what we've been looking at, what, what the whole um, structure of Book Three of the Fairy Queen, um, or the through line of Book Three of the Fairy Queen, has been chastity which is excessive, as though the um, idea of excessive chastity is the one that Spencer is trying to make sense of. Chastity seems to be a binary, all or nothing. You're either chaste or you aren't. Um, but that, if that's true, if it's all or nothing, then you have a contrast with temperance, because temperance is, temperance is a kind of um, tripartite uh, um, a choice among three parts. It's a tri temperance has a the world of temperance has a tripartite structure: um, the two extremes and the mean. Uh, Medina versus the two extremes, um, and uh, so temperance seems to be a virtue which presumes a world that can go in three different directions too much, too little, or just right. A Goldilocks world. Yeah, Ben. Well, how do we reconcile the notion that um, the best type of chastity is a temperate one uh, with Belphemi? Yeah. You know, it's completely chaste and, and honored for it. Yes, but Belphemi, so, so again... I'll just say in general that there are people who exercise extraordinary ingenuity um, at making everything in Spencer um, make perfect, beautiful, everything fits together like the greatest crossword puzzle ever written sense. And you can do it. Um, but the fact that you can do it um, starts looking suspicious because it also requires a little bit of nudging here and forcing there and so on. I, my view of Spencer is that Spencer can do it, but what makes him great is that he stops doing it. And um, that 
stopping doing it once you once you've shown you can do it when you stop doing something um, it's because you're say it's because you're actually kind of giving an allegory about allegory itself and what you're saying is if the world could be perfectly captured by an allegory it wouldn't be a world it wouldn't be worth writing poetry about that there is an opposition between the power of poetry and the allegorical idea that poetry is supposed to disappear once you decode it. That is, the idea of allegory or dark conceit is you read the story not for itself, but in order to decode it. And once you decode it, the story stops being of interest. The story is only a vehicle to deliver to you a meaning which can be um, which can be taken out out of the husk or out of the packaging of the story. Um, if the packaging is what matters to you, rather than the thing in the package, um, then you won't be on the side of allegory. You'll be on the side of the magical world that allegorists say you're supposed to get rid of but that I think Spencer doesn't want to get rid of. So if you um, look just for a second at the beginning of book six of The Fairy Queen, which we'll get to, but now we can say, yay, we're so far ahead of the game, we're doing just fine, no problem. You guys won't have to stay over the summer to finish this, which I don't know if you know, but I can require you to do. Um, <laughs> not true. Um, but this is page 875. Um, I think this first stanza to the poem to book six of The Fairy Queen is a really important one to tell you Spencer's own relation to his work. So what he says there is he's introducing the last full canto of The Fairy Queen. Does he know it's the last full canto? Probably not, but he does know it's the last full canto in the, um, in the second installment of The Fairy Queen. That is, again, the first three books come out in 1589. The next three books come out along with the first three books in 1596. So this is the last, this is the last part of um, the second installment, um, The Empire Strikes Back or whatever. Um, so the ways, he says at the very start, the ways through which my weary steps I guide in this delightful land of fairy are so exceeding spacious and wide and sprinkled with sweet variety of all that pleasant is to ear or eye that I, nigh ravished with rare thoughts delight, my tedious travel do forget thereby, and when I gin to feel decay of might. Its strength to me supplies and cheers my dulled sprite. So just, the whole poem is worth reading, but just that stanza is Spencer talking about writing the Fairy Queen. And he says that writing the Fairy Queen is being lost himself in the land of fairy, traveling through it. Um, it's, a, you know, think a little bit here of The Princess Bride, um, which really, um, uh, <coughs> Goldman is thinking of Spencer, among other things. But just 
being lost in writing the work is for him a joy and the reason he can describe the experiences of I mean this is true of all great fantasy literature that the reason you can describe the experiences of fantasy characters um, that you can describe the experiences of characters in Tolkien or in Philip Pullman or in C.S. Lewis or whoever um, in Gabriel Garcia Marquez in magic realism the reason you can describe those experiences is that characters in those worlds are described as feeling something like the same awe and wonder as the reader and also the writer feel in fantasizing about those worlds. The thing about a fantasy world, if it's done right, is that it's a fantasy for its characters also. It's as though, wow, this is amazing, we're living in a fantasy world. That's the experience of characters in a good fantasy. Um, it shouldn't be normal and day-to-day -day for fantasy characters in a good fantasy. Um, that's a different kind of writing, something that we would call science fiction even. But the difference between science fiction and fantasy, even though obviously um, there are a lot of things that claim to be both or there are a lot of um, morphings of one to the other, but the difference between science fiction and fantasy is that in fantasy all the good guys, at least all the good guys, go around with a sense of the same kind of awe in the imaginative that a reader who loves those works will go around with as well. Um, and also, Spencer is saying that the writer of those works goes around with Spencer. He's getting old, that's what he says. His spirit is becoming tired and dull. And yet, when he guides his steps through the land of fairy, when he thinks about what's going on there, when he gets lost in his own writing and in his own imagination, then he feels strengthened, cheered, finding himself in this wondrous and wonderful world full of sweet variety. Ben? Um, in magical realism, the extraordinary kind of becomes banal, so would that still be part of fantasy? Because you mentioned Marquez... Well, so what do you, banal is, what, what is banal in Marquez? I think what happens in, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously thinking of 100 Years of Solitude more than anything else. Okay. Um, um, he, like, he has a story about, one of his parents wrote stories about an angel. Who yeah, the very old man with yeah, enormous wings. Um, yeah. And it's treated just as being completely normal. It's not a fantasy for the characters within the story. Well, it, no, I think what happens in that story, actually, is that at first they're amazed by him but then they just keep coming up with hypotheses and they lose interest. Okay. And, but what the way that story ends, sorry? They also like trap him and put him in a cage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They dull the wonder no. with science. Yeah, but they're, the, really the po nicely put, they dull the wonder with science. Um, what happens is they start out amazed, but they turn out not to be the good guys. So it's the good guys who maintain their wonder. You know, that's a stand. You could say that that's a standard criterion for good guys um, in a whole lot of literature. Obviously, not in all of literature. Like the film noir detective is not a person who sustains a capacity for wonder. But think of the great Gatsby. Um, think of what makes Gatsby great. You've all read the Great Gatsby, right? Anyone not? Are is anyone? Are you all? Everyone who has raised your hands. Okay. 
So um, what makes Gatsby great, even though he's not a good person, what makes him great is that he still sustains something, as Fitzgerald puts it at the end of the novel, commensurate with the human capacity for wonder. That's the very last page of The Great Gatsby, is what Long Island must have looked like to the first Europeans, face-to-face um, -face for the last time, commensurate with their capacity for wonder. Do you remember that? And Gatsby is the one who has that capacity. And Nick feels that Gatsby is great in a way that he, Nick, isn't, because Gatsby has sustained that capacity for wonder, whereas Nick is able to see through people. He's 30 years old, five years too old to lie to himself, as he puts it, um, and call it, I forget what it is that he calls it, and call it something like um, feeling the wonder of the world. But Gatsby maintains that, and that's what makes him great. So a capacity for wonder, that's also what happens in A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings, is that the old man is still whatever marvelous thing that he is, um, even if he's a fallen and lost marvelous thing, he's still that marvelous thing that he is. Whereas the townspeople, um, what they become are people who get used to him, stop feeling wonder about him. Um, I think that Marquez is actually, you can, I believe, you can trace, it would be interesting to trace, you could write a senior thesis tracing, um, a genealogy from Marquez to Borges to Hawthorne to Spencer, um, because that's a kind of thing that they have in common. Um, and, and it is a capacity for wonder, which really, is, which really does make you um, uh, sympathetic to a reader. As I say, there are other kinds of good guys, like the film noir detective, um, but in fantasy literature, you know, it's the reason that Harry Potter um, lives with the Dursleys, is because he has to learn about the magical world that they're trying to keep from him. Whereas all the bad guys in Harry Potter, Draco Malfoy and so on, they're used to magic. They hate half-bloods. For them, magic is just the way the world should be. And they're not saying, God, it's amazing, this magical world. But for Harry Potter, it always is amazing. Um, and that's why, um, I mean, that's, that's, why, that's why in a technical sense, he's the focus of Harry Potter. Um, because he, like us, um, preserves some of that capacity for wonder, even as he gets cynical and embittered as, as he becomes your age. Um, he's still, there's always something there, and what makes him good is that he's always capable of still being struck by how amazing this all is. But Spencer is saying writing this poem is being struck by the amazingness of where imagination can take you. Um, and that is what gives him joy even in his old age, he's saying. It's strength to me supplies and cheers my dullard sprite. The reason I'm saying that is to say that that is an anti-allegorical way of understanding the fairy queen. The allegorical way is don't look at the wonder. That's all simply... Um, uh, mock-up, stage, stage paper mache. You have to see through that to the truth. So wonder is opposed to truth. Um, this is always, this is an old philosophical idea. Um, Aristotle and Plato both said that wonder is incomplete knowledge. That philosophy begins with wonder. This is a sentence that they share, actually. 
Um, philosophy begins with wonder, but its goal is knowledge. And that's turning wonder into science. Or how did you put it? Or what? Would, yeah. Um, and that is what Spencer seems to be saying in the letter to Raleigh. What he's saying is, you know, sorry for all this, all this fancy um, uh, um, magic, magical stuff in this book. But that's the only way people are going to re really read it. But you and I, we know that what counts is not is not all this magical stuff, but what lies underneath it. But now he's saying no. Now we're on page eight seventy five. And after 875, 875 pages of, um, of the um, outside, of, the, um, of special effects, he's saying, yeah, it's, it really is the special effects that matter. It really is that last level of inception that matters and not just flying on the plane um, on, on the real, on the actual level. Um, it really does matter whether the coin stops spinning or doesn't. Um, spoiler, not really. Um, if that's a spoiler, you guys are really good. Um, but it really matters, and it really and the fic fiction is greater than truth. Um, the that's what Spencer is saying here. So that if you try to force the allegory of the Fairy Queen into one-to-one -one correspondence with its meaning, which many many people do. Um, because you can, you can exercise considerable cleverness in doing that. If you try to force the algorithm of the Fairy Queen into one-to-one -one correspondence with some moral argument, what will happen is that you are preferring the decoding of this world to the um, rapture of the world. It's, you're not being immersed in the world, but you're saying, oh, I'm not fooled by this. I know what these things actually mean. Um, and this goes again to, um, this is the large version of what I was saying about sex in, and the Red Cross Knight um, in book one of The Fairy Queen, which is that the wrong reading of literature from a Spencerian or a Freudian or allegorical point of view is you find out the true thing that is being gussied up in some fancy um, presentation. And if you can find out what we know already is the truth, then we can see how to remove the um, theatrical trappings. So a, Freud, a, a Freudian reading of a work of literature is done by, I'll just give you the category because it's a standard one. It's the category of vulgar Freudians. So you'll sometimes hear in literary criticism the adjective vulgar applied to um, some literary critical movement. Um, and the standard ones are vulgar Marxist and vulgar Freudian. And what vulgar Freudians do, what vulgar Marxists do, what vulgar Derridians do, and what vulgar Aristotelians do, and vulgar is supposed to be a mean word there. Um, it's a vulgar way of reading, is to say, oh, it's all about sex. We can see that it's all about sex. There's a dark tower. Tower is always phallic, so Child Roland to the Dark Tower came is really about sex. Or there is, you know, the two towers. So um, that's about um, Tolkien's um, 
homosexuality because really it's all about sex, and if you have two towers, it's clearly about about male male sexuality. Um, or the pit and the pendulum. Well, we know what a pit is, don't we? Um, you know, just take any work of literature, um, and it's very easy to do a vulgar Freudian reading and say it's all about sex um, because it always is in vulgar Freudian readings. A vulgar allegorical reading is it's all about good versus evil, and the evil is always the seven deadly sins, and the good is someone who is always tempted by the seven deadly sins, but somehow resist that temptation. So that's what it's all about. And, um, you know, what, what is Moby Dick about? Well, Moby Dick is all about sex, and it's also all about evil. Um, and the white whale represents both. Um, and um, all of those kinds of readings are mistaking a means for an end. They are mistaking an instrument for the thing that instrument is supposed to get you to. So, again, to repeat about what I, what I think about the Fairy Queen, it's in no way all about sex. Sex is one of the things that's in the Fairy Queen, but not what the Fairy Queen is finally trying to get you to think about. It's trying to get you to think with sexuality, because that's a human experience, but not trying to get you to think that, ah, now we know it's about sex. It's not about sex. It's about being in an imaginary fantasy world. And one quick way to get people fantasizing is to put some sex in. But that's just, it's not because all fantasies are sexual fantasies. It's because sexual fantasies are definitely fantasies. And fantasy is what this is about, not sex. That's a way to, to, do, to put it in, a, in Freudian terms. In allegorical terms, you just have to change it a little bit by saying um, the temptation to having sex um, is what uh, good knights have to resist, and they, resi they more or less resist it, and there's sex in book one and sex in book two and sex in book three, and as you will see, sex in book four and... Um, even in book five, actually a lot in book five, and in book six, um, the temptation of having sex um, is what good and evil is always about, and um, therefore the fairy queen is all about sex. That's the wrong allegorical reading of the fairy queen. That's the vulgar allegorical reading. The, the better allegorical reading is... No, we get really interested in stories quickly. It's a good literary technique to get us interested in people by being interested in who they love and who they don't. One other parallel you can say you, that I would like to offer for this is that you can say, think of Astaire and Rogers movies or Busby Berkeley movies. Um, do you guys know Magnetic Fields? Um, you should listen to Magnetic Fields. Totally great, right? So they, um, Stephen Merritt has a great song. He's the, he's the lead singer and songwriter. He can't really sing, but it's still great. Um, because yeah, totally wonderful band. He, um, it's it's the uh, um, alternative contemporary alternative uh, music version of Cole Porter. Um, and uh, so he's got a great song called Busby Berkeley Dreams. That's, that's uh, why, why I bring him up here. Um, 
think of Astaire Rogers movies if you know them, or Busby Berkeley movies if you know them. And again, the wrong thing to say about the about those movies is, you know, the way Astaire and Rogers dance. Really, what that's about is that they're having sex with each other, um, because that's what dancing always is. Um, and you couldn't get those movies wronger than to think that dancing means sex in those movies. And the right way to understand those movies, or a whole lot closer to the right way of understanding those movies, is um, sex really is a way um, to um, at least get people into seeing what's really amazing about those movies, which is dancing. Um, that is that the sexual, whatever's going on sexually between Astaire and Rogers, um, that's interesting not because it's sex, but because it gets them to dance. And it's the dancing that's interesting. So that's what he's saying when he says he's guiding his steps through the Fairy Queen. See that as dancing. That is, again, the ways through which my weary steps I guide in this delightful land of fairy are so exceeding spacious and wide and sprinkled with sweet variety. All of those things are, don't turn it into one thing. It's variety, not single-mindedness. Guyon is the knight of single-mindedness. Even though he's the knight of temperance, he's the knight of single-mindedness. Britomart is also single-minded, and essentially what we see, you could now say when Britomart um, knocks Guyon off his horse, is that single-mindedness defeats temperance. That is to say that Guyon is both single-minded and temperate, or he's supposed to be both. But it turns out, as we've seen from the start, that what's wrong with Guyon is he's a fanatic for temperance. That was, you brought up Carrie <coughs> right, Laurie? What? Someone did. Um, didn't someone bring up Carrie Nation and temperance, <coughs> the temperance movement? I think you did. No, I didn't. I was responding to someone. Um, okay. Um... Maybe it was Tony. We'll blame it on him. He's not here. Or is Sean, uh, Sean here? No. Um, John's not here. It was one of them. Um, <laughs> or maybe it's that person named Heather. That's who it was. <laughs> no, not you. Heather. Oh, good. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Temperance is not supposed to be... Temperance would seem to be the opposite of single-mindedness, but in Guyon we see that it isn't. And if it's supposed to be the opposite of single-mindedness, then, then Britomart's defeating Guyon is a way of showing that what Guyon wants to be, which is temperate, from his point of view, if Britomart is for him, which she has to be in the first moment of Book Three of the Fairy Queen, because Guyon is our focus, to the extent that Britomart is for him, Britomart is a lesson that Guyon not be, is not actually temperate, but he's single-mindedly focused on the very center of things, which becomes yet another extreme. He's focused, you could say, on the apex of the triangle, and he says, look, you know, here's angle A at the, at the bottom left and angle B at the bottom right, but me, I don't focus on those extremes, angle A and angle B. I'm focusing on angle C, the apex. But that's just as much an extreme as angle A and angle B on the bottom left and right of the triangle. And that's what Britomart is, is showing him and showing us about him. 
Um, he thought he was temperate, but he was just single-minded at another place, single-minded at another point. Um, someone told me this joke the other day that, um, who was telling us these jokes? I don't remember, but three statisticians go duck hunting, um, and one um, shoots, and um, her shot goes a yard too high. Um, the second one then tries and shoots, and her shot goes a yard too low. And the third one says, good, we hit it. <laughs> <laughs> That's statisticians for you. Um, so that would, be, that would actually be a kind of temperate way of seeing things, standard deviation. Well, there are a lot of bad ones. But that would be standard deviation. Um, and standard deviation would be a great name for a paper on the Fairy Queen. Um, but for, um, for Guyon, it's something like, you have to hit it right in the middle. You have to. If you don't get the middle precisely, you've done everything wrong. And that's fanaticism, not temperance. Um, and that's what Britomart would be indicating. So Britomart then um, both represents um, the, what's wrong with temperance, and represents the and that is to say the extremity of temperance, but she's also what's going to who is going to try to figure out another way. So the other <coughs> way is going to be some way of actually taking a binary. You're a virgin or you're not, and finding a median between those two things, things that don't seem to be. Um, binary. Um, again, it's like like another s statistical joke that the average you know that the average person in the United States has one testicle and one ovary. Um, that's the difficulty of trying to average binaries. Is you get an average which really doesn't exist um, that that no one belongs to. So that's the average between virginity. And, um, and non-virginity, what's the average? That's the problem that Brutamart has to solve, and that's the problem that everyone has to solve, including Belphoebe, including Amoret, um, including Helenor, you could say, um, who goes the other way, not to extreme virginity, but to extreme sexual um, adventurism. Um, Same with false Floramel. <laughs> Well, yeah, and the same you could say with false Floramel, although she's very interesting because she keeps saying no yeah. to people. Yeah, she just like sort of uh, uses all the worldly women's wisdom to keep them dangling. Yeah, um, and she's very interesting that way. It's also very interesting that the churl, um, who is described, if, if you look in, in, um, uh, at the narrator's description of the churl, he says, God, he was just so terrible, he wanted to have sex with Flora Mel. Who did he think he is? Look what a brute he was. He made her little gifts, yeah, and he tied and flowers, her, and, and flowers, and he brought her tiny birds. little pets. And oh. Horrible. Um, and that is clearly a way of saying, you know, the story and the allegory just don't go together. But then they described the churl, and, um, you know, when the false Flora Mel was made with that same line that he then used, that lightly he clipped her betwixt his armor's twain. Uh-huh. I thought that was great. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay, now let's go finally to the Garden of Adonis. So this is, um, because really the Garden of Adonis, this is book three, canto six, um, really the Garden of Adonis is the principle, what it's about is the principle of creation, um, of creation of the world of experience. So go to, um, let's, 
we have to sort of go through a lot, but we will. Go to uh, page 468. Um, and notice that what introduces the Garden of Adonis is the conflict between Venus and Diana. That is the conflict between love and chastity. And they have a fight. It is a conflict. First, there's a conflict. You know, it's one of many conflicts in Book 3 of The Fairy Queen between extreme chastity and its opposite. So she gets angry and she says, go look for your boy um, wherever you want to go. But, but then they make it up. Um, line tw- this is uh, stanza 25. Whom when as Venus saw so sore displeased, she inly sorry was and gan relent what she had said. So her she soon appeased with sugared words and gentle blandishment, um, which as a fountain from her sweet lips went and welled goodly forth in short space she was well pleased, that is, Diana was, TV was, and forth her damsel sent through all the woods to search from place to place if any tract of him or tidings they mote trace, and then they find um, fair Chrysogony, Chrysogone, rather, in 26, in slumbery trance, Wilair, um, who in her bed, a wondrous thing to say, unwares had borne two babes as fair as springing day. So those are Amorit and Belphoebe. Unwares she then conceived, unwares she bore. So that starts feeling a little bit like a first very rough approximation of something between chastity and concupiscence. She conceived them unaware, and unaware she bore, she bore withouten pain that she conceived withouten pleasure. Um, Why, according to God, do women experience pain in labor? You know that, that you know that this is true. That human um, labor is um, probably the the second most painful um, labor in the animal kingdom. Most animals um, give birth without pain, but humans have very very great pain in labor. It's in the top ten pain you, top ten experiences of pain that humans can experience, and often said to be number one. Um, only hyenas have it worse, actually. Um, no, they do. It's amazing. Hyenas have 50% um, maternal mortality rates, um, whereas most animals have like much lower maternal mortality than humans Yeah, do. they don't even know when they drop yeah. their pups. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so why, according to God, is that true? It's the sin. Yeah, it's a punishment for sin. It's a punishment for sin. Um, the word, by the way, that Sp- I, I didn't focus on this, but should have, the word that Spencer uses when he talks about his travel through the land of fairy... Um, travel there is a pun on travail and in fact it's not Spencer's pun they, they come from the same root travail that is work travail that is doing something painful which labor is it's the same word as labor, labor. traveling is a travail um, as I can tell you from my flight Sunday night um, traveling is a, can be a pain especially if you're flying American and um, that was your first mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But see, that's the original sin. Um, you your luggage. <laughs> yeah. So that's 
so so but what Spencer is saying when he uses the word travel in uh, at the at the beginning of book six is that he's working on the poem. The traveling through that work world is travailing on the work. That those two things are the same for Spencer. Um, okay, so she bears them without pain, but she conceives them without pleasure. So that's a first very crude approximation of a medium level of chastity. That is, it's not sex for pleasure, and therefore it's not punished with birth through pain. Um, that seems to be the um, lex telonis of, um, of Genesis, which is all the pleasure you took in becoming pregnant is you're going to get paid back in the pain of giving birth. One leads to another. Pleasure leads to pain. Um, and for Chris and Gunn, it doesn't work that way. Um, she takes no pleasure in conception because it was only sunlight, and therefore she can um, give birth without even waking up. Ne, um, nay, her need implore Lucina's um, aid. Lucina is the goddess of childbirth, which, when they both perceived, both Venus and Phoebe, both Venus and Diana, they were through wonder nigh of sense bereaved, and gazing on each other, not this spake, at last they both agreed, her seeming grieved, out of her heavy swoon not to awake, but from her loving side, the tender babes to take. So again, binary, Amoret Belphoebe, one stands for um, a very chaste huntress who nevertheless likes Timaeus and um, is a good friend to him. And the other stands for... Um, someone, something like Venus, that is a, a, um, a figure of love, hence her name Amoret, who grows up in the Garden of Adonis, but who nevertheless um, is very chaste, as we will see in what ensues. Up they them took, each one a babe of took, and with them carried to be fostered. Um, you could see this, by the way, as a version of the Judgment of Solomon. That is, um, if only the woman in, in Solomon had had twins, or if only the argument was an argument about twins, then Solomon's proposal to split the baby would make more sense. Um, and obviously his proposal is a trick, but the point is that with twins again, it's Spencer saying, see, it's a binary, but here's a crude solution. Have twins. Have one of them be more chaste and the other one more loving, and but have them kind of converge on each other so that the real difference between Phoebe and Venus becomes a minimized difference, but still a difference, but a much more minimal difference between Belle Phoebe and Amoret, their foster daughters. So um, they, they go, Dame Phoebe to a nymph, her babe betook to be a brought and perfect maidenhead, that is perfect virginity, and of herself her name Belle Phoebe, Red, that is, she gave her the name Belle Phoebe from her own name, Phoebe. Um, beautiful Phoebe, but also warlike Phoebe. Um, Belle meaning beautiful, um, as in La Belle et la Bête, um, Beauty and the Beast, but Belle also meaning war, as in antebellum. Um, but Venus, hers, thence far away conveyed to be a brought in goodly womanhead. So what's the distinction in this stanza? Maiden. Ma so, maidenhead versus womanhead. Yeah, maidenhead versus womanhead. And notice that those—that's a um, 
a somewhat bogus rhyme. It's a rhyme only on a suffix rather than a genuine rhyme, um, like conveyed and strayed and dismayed, or read and fostered. But uptook and betook are also um, non-genuine rhymes. Spencer knows that. That is, there's a sense of twinship in those words rather than rhyming. Rhyming and twinship are different things. Um, if you rhyme um, maidenhead with, with womanhead, if you rhyme um, coyness with business, um, those are twin formations ending in ness, but they're not actual rhymes. But that's the point of the twin. This is a stanza about twins. So she was to be brought in goodly womanhead, and you're supposed to see, okay, there's maidenhead, that, that is virginity. You all know that from Romeo and Juliet, right? That's the first discussion in Romeo and Juliet, is a discussion about maidenhead. Um, that's the hymen. Um, there's maidenhead, and then there's womanhead. And um, that is the difference between Amoret and Belphoebe. And now Amoret, who is going to be the heroine, um, the official heroine, or the official damsel in distress in book three, um, gets focused on. That is, no, not maidenhead, but womanhead, womanhood. That's what matters. And in her little love's stead, and in her, and in her little love's stead, which was strayed, her amaretta called to comfort her dismayed. So she calls her amaretta um, to remind her of Cupid. Um, so she's also a kind of foster twin for Cupid. Um, so she brought her to her joyous paradise, and here's the Garden of Adonis, where most she wones when she on earth does dwell. So when Venus is on earth, where she spends her time is in her joyous paradise, so fair a place as nature can devise, the most beautiful place that nature can come up with, so fair a place as nature can devise, whether in Paphos, or sit, or sit there on hill, or in the nidus be, I woke not well. So she, he doesn't know where the Garden of Adonis is. Is it in Paphos, on the island of Cyprus? Is it on Citheron Hill, um, that is a hill sacred to Venus? Is it in Nidus, which I believe is in Egypt? I don't know, says Spencer. I don't know where it is. But well I wote by trial that this same all other pleasant places doth excel and call it is by her lost lover's name the Garden of Adonis far renowned by fame. So I think the words that should really haunt you here in, the, in this opening description of the Garden of Adonis is the words by trial. What does that mean? Well, I wot by trial that this same all other pleasant places doth excel. I'm not even looking at you, Vina. I'm looking at everyone else. What does that mean? Paraphrase. Yes. I don't know where it is, but I know by trying it or comparing it to all these other places that it's better. Yeah. 
Okay, so I know, I know, I don't know where it is, but I know through comparison that it's better than all these other places. What does trial mean? You know, when we talk about a legal trial, what do you do in a trial? What's the verb that goes with trial? Try somebody. You try somebody. Um, and what does the word try mean in that context? Test. Test. Yeah. Um, so it's basically, and if you go through a trial, you know, oh man, the trials I went through to get here from San Francisco on Sunday night. <laughs> um, if you go through a trial, it means you're going through a travail. Um, it means you're, you're being tested. You're having a difficult experience, a testing <laughs> experience. So um, if you try something, you know, a trial run is, um, let's just see how this goes. Um, let's do a trial run for, uh, for, for a quiz. Um, so trying something is not only something you do in a court of law, but it's just experiencing it for yourself to see what it's like. So by trial here means something like that, experiencing it for himself. I won't, I know for a fact, he says. How do you know, we could say, if you don't even know where it is? And he says, I know by trial, which means he's been there. So... How can that be if he doesn't know where it is? Lurie? He dreamed it or something? He dreamed it? Good. Or we could say that he had the experience of being in Venus's garden, the experience of love, and now it's lost. And yet he knows that it's better than anything else he's ever experienced. So I don't know where it is, he says, but I do know that it's better than all other pleasant places on earth. How do I know? Because I've been there. I can't tell you how to get back there to that secret garden, but I've been there. That's part of the fantasy. Yeah, Because exactly. if you could say, well, it's, it's just over the hill, you know, then yeah. that's not really fantastic. Right, you know, exactly. mystery that, that yeah. Yeah. makes it. Yeah, exactly. But also because it's tangible and intangible at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Because he has been there. Mm -hmm. Has anyone read um, the great early 20th century French novel Le Grand Monde? Um, it's by Alain, Alain Fournier. It's totally wonderful. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one of the great near-fantasy novels. It's not quite a fantasy novel, but it's a near-fantasy novel. Um, and very sad and very wonderful. Um, novel, so it's it was translated recently in Penguin, so um, I strongly recommend it. Anyhow, it's a very similar idea. So let's just let's just go on a little more. We will certainly. Um, well, we got into book six. We're doing fine. Um, in that same garden, all the goodly flowers were with Dame Nature doth her beautify. So Nature beautifies herself with all these flowers, and dot and decks the garlands of her paramours are fetched. So all the flowers on earth come from the Garden of Adonis. Everything beautiful on earth comes from the Garden of Adonis. There is the first seminary, that is, place of um, uh, where, where you um, sprout plants, where you put them before you transplant them onto um, more uh, um, rugged soil. There is the first seminary of all things that are born to live and die according to their kinds. Long work it were here to account the endless progeny of all the weeds that, that bud and blossom there, but so much as doth need 
must needs be counted here. So again, the word to be haunted by there, I'll just tell you, that it's very useful to know what words to be haunted by, is the word need. I can't tell you everything in that garden because it's everything. But everything that I need to tell you, I really need to tell you. So much as doth need must needs be counted here. Where does this need come into the fairy queen? That is the deep question or the deep answer in Spencer, that somehow writing this poem has now become a need for him. I need to tell you about this beauty, these flowers in this garden. And I can't tell you everything, it's just too much. But what I need to tell you, I really need to tell you. That's literary need. Hang on to that concept. Hang on to it for all your life, because that's the concept Spencer is giving you. The concept of literary need. What you need from a work of literature. What literature makes a need to you, henceforth. How literature changes your life so that it introduces a new need. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, um, tomorrow we will um, be well on our way to finishing The Fairy Queen. Really. <laughs>